The man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the men's, man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Fascinating, isn't it? Now, we're going to talk about these issues of the first three chapters in the light of the series that we're going through at the moment about men and women in the Bible. Uh, we've subtitled it a, a Divine Harmony. The way that God intends men and women to interact, to work together, to cooperate, and bring him glory and make a difference in this world. And whilst I'm here in Genesis 1-3, to I will say this before we begin. I'm not dealing with the creation story in its detail. We're not talking about how God made what he made. That's a whole other lesson for another time. I'm also not going to um, take a position on how literal all or some of this is, or how symbolic or how how other ways it can be uh, interpreted. Because for the purposes of talking about what God is teaching us about men and women here, our interpretation of this passage in that way isn't relevant. I'm not saying it's not important, but it's not important for the issues that we're dealing with here today. So if you have a, a very literal um, understanding of this passage, that's fine. If you don't have, that's fine. It doesn't change, I think, what we're looking at here today. We're also not looking at this passage through the eyes of the New Testament. That is relevant. Jesus talks about Adam and Eve, and other parts of the New Testament talk about Adam and Eve. We'll get to those passages in some of our teaching classes on the Wednesday nights. But we're not going to look at this passage through those eyes, which are, of course, a lot later. We're going to look at it for what it is and how it was uh, the message it may have been giving the people of Israel at the time that this happened and that this was written. See, our world is fractured on many lines. You will recognize that. We were talking about Belfast earlier. This is a wall from, in Belfast. I took this photograph. Now, here's the ironic thing. This is a wall in Belfast separating a Protestant and Catholic area. Right? Only of us that grew up during the period of the Troubles will remember that kind of thing, and, and you a lot more uh, profoundly than any of the rest of us here. I took that photograph. It's a very old photograph taken with a, one of the early digital cameras. Uh, I, I took that photograph on the day of 9-11. It just so happened I was on a staff retreat in Belfast, and we were in Belfast. We were taking a tour. One of the chaps who lived there took us around, showed us various parts of Belfast, some of the areas of divide. And then we were walking a lot around, and somebody said, something's happened. And we all went and crowded around a television screen in a shop window <laughs> as it was all being played out. I found it, I mean, it's, it's tragic what happened. It was also strangely strangely strange and profound to be in a city known for troubles of terrorism, you could say, depending on your point of view, whilst one of the greatest terrorist uh, attacks of our time was literally taking place at that moment. Of course, it's one of those things, when you experience it, you never forget. 
I remember what happened. I remember how I felt. Not just then, but all through the day. It was such a weird thing. We had church that night. And it was like, like church you've never had before or since because none of us could focus. Anyway, that's a whole story for another time. But that represents the fractured nature of the way that humankind tends to treat one another. We descend into our camps. We're for or against things or one another. And finding harmony is so difficult. Our society, our world is fractured on the lines of wealth and poverty, of class, upper and lower classes, of race and ethnicity, of religion, of age, age, young and old, education status. Our world is very fractured. And perhaps most profoundly of all of those is the fracture between men and women. Because God made both men and women. And he made them to be in harmony. And yet in our world, that's often not the case. So let's talk about some things that may help us to understand God's plan for humankind. Firstly, chapter one. Brief point, really. But what do we learn about creation from chapter one? If we just take a dip into chapter one here and there. So God, at the very beginning, uh, creates the heavens and the earth. Uh, the spirit of God hovers over the waters. We've got God's creative spirit powerfully at work, creating all things. First of all, light. And there's day and there's darkness. There's night. Then there's water and there's sky. And then we've got dry ground and seas. And then we've got vegetation in verse 11, seed-bearing plants, trees, fruit. And then that vegetation, uh, trees for evening and morning, third day, light. We've got the sun and the moon. We've got, uh, then what have we got? We've got the water teeming with living creatures. So the fish and all the things that live in the sea. And the birds flying, great creatures. The water is teeming. And what does it say here? It says at the end of verse 21, and God saw that it was good. It was good. God blessed them, be fruitful. There was evening, morning, the fifth day. Then living creatures, livestock, creatures that move on the ground, wild animals, wild animals, livestock, moving on the ground. And God, again, verse 25, saw that it was good. Then God said, let's make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals, creatures that move along the ground. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. There's an emphasis there. Male and female, he created them. He blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you, I give you, male and female, every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth, all the birds of the sky, all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give you every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made. I love the way this chapter ends. He saw all that he had made. So everything from the, the galaxy, the stars, the, 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 the universe, and all that, and, 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 the, and the world, and the sun, and the moon, and the waters, and the mountains, and the land, and the plants, and the trees, and the fruit, and the beasts of the water, and the land, and the, I don't know, he sees all of it, and he sees mankind, humankind, male and female, and it was, in verse 31, not just good, it was very good. It was very good. It was, you could say, perhaps perfect, ideal. Just the way God had made it. 
pristine, pure, awesome. It was very good. There was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. If men and women are going to work together well and bring gifts together to bear to honor God and serve the people in this world that need it, we do need to have a fundamental understanding that we've been made good. We're not a mistake. You're not a mistake. You've not been made bad. You've not been made bad. Someone said, God, don't make junk. I think that's right. Are we somewhat messed up? Okay, yeah. Are we corrupted? Yeah. Okay, do we need redeeming? Yeah. But fundamentally, we're good. We've been made for goodness and to inhabit a good world, a very good world. And we have a role in this chapter, and it's emphasized also in the other chapters, we have a role to rule over, to fill, to subdue, to be fruitful, to increase. Mm. Humankind have been quite, quite good at increasing, and it still goes on. And we have a joint responsibility here. This is humanity's responsibility, male and female. It's not one or the other. Be fruitful, rule together, subdue together, be fruitful together. There's no division here. It's for male and female to do all of these things. I just want to make this one point. As we are examining uh, men and women working together, and we're going to be dealing in our teaching classes more with some of the more controversial issues around a lot of traditional biblical teaching about the roles of men and women, at least what we can say in this chapter is there's no hint of any better or higher value to men or women. There's no sense of hierarchy here. They are commissioned for what God has in mind for them. And we also should ask ourselves what we learn about God. We're going to ask this question after each of the three points I have for us today. What do we learn about God from this passage? We learn that he's a creative God. I, I think it would be accurate to say that I'm a creator, as in, not like this, but as in, I'm a creative kind of person. I get a real buzz out of recording podcasts or making videos or, or actually doing this, writing, a, working out some kind of lesson and presenting it. I, that's it's definitely something I'm wired for. It's a, something in the, my makeup, right? Um, but all of us, all of us have creative powers in different ways. And we know some of those. I mean, Sarah's creative powers are definitely in the area of cake making um, and and knitting, and gardening, and parenting. Any more, Leon? We could go on for a while, right? But we all have our different gifts. But God is the ultimate creator. He's creative. The reason why humanity is creative is because God is the ultimate creator. Created more things than any of the rest of us ever have or will. The whole sum of humankind in the whole of human history has never made as much as God has made. And the only things he makes are good. Some of my sermons, I think, are fairly decent. At least that's what you tell me. Some of them are pretty rubbish, I think. Uh, you don't have to say amen. But I, I, they're not all equally good. Some of them are quite bad, I think. Certainly, so, I don't know. But God only makes good things. He's never made one bad thing. Isn't that amazing? What a creator he is. Uh, he's creative and he's generous. He uh, enables humankind to be fruitful. He uh, in, engages us in our creative act. And we are given stewardship over an amazing creation. We are given a purpose. So Genesis 1 is the big picture view. It's like, it's like if, you, um, if you have a drone with a camera on it and you, you send it way up into the sky to, to look over West Watford or something and you get that big panoramic view 
of West Watford. That's Genesis 1. Genesis 2 is when you bring that drone back down to ground level and say, okay, actually, what's going on? You probably wouldn't use a drone for that. You'd have a... Um, You'd have some kind of camera like Leon's or something, going around looking at everything, right? So Genesis 2, and we'll come down to this now. So it was very good, but then, because oh, everything was in harmony, but then something was not good. And that's chapter 2. And in chapter 2, we've got this zoomed in focus on Adam and Eve. Adam's there, and God's part of the, the garden. The garden's amazing. It's a garden, of, uh, there's a river flowing from Eden. And there's some detail there which we won't deal with now. God puts man in the uh, Garden of Eden to work it, take care of it. And he says, you're free, verse 16, to eat from the tree of any garden, of the, in any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You will certainly die. And then verse 18, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And then he brings all the birds and the animals to the man to give them a name. And he gives names to all the livestock, the birds and the wild animals, but, end of verse 20, for Adam, no suitable helper was found. I don't know how many birds and, and, and animals he named. I mean, how many species are there in the world today? There's a lot. Uh, I'd have got a bit bored after the first 10. I'll call that a jaguar. I'll call that a lion. I'll call that a tiger. I don't know. What, I mean, I, I don't know exactly how that worked, right? But after 100 of those, I'd have been running out of names, and I'd be getting bored. And one speculative thing I read in a book, which I thought was quite cool, it's a little speculation, but I rather like, is the idea that this writer said that they reckon that God did this so that Adam would be completely convinced that there was nothing else on earth that would satisfy him other than, well, ultimately, one like him. Because he got, he got this animal, then that animal, is that going to be the one? Is that going to be the one? Is that going to be my helper? Is that going to be the one, my companion? Is that going to be suitable? Is that bird? Is that animal? And, and he goes through maybe 10 scores, hundreds, maybe thousands of these things. And at the end of it, God has demonstrated to him, this ain't going to work, not with any of them. Much as we love um, these other animals, as much as we love uh, what God gives us, um, sometimes animals can be useful, and they can be a help. Uh, and sometimes animals uh, might like to try and help, but uh, may not be actually uh, that useful. All the animals are displayed before, uh, before him, and none of them are adequate. And so then God causes the man to fall into a deep sleep, which the passage we read earlier, he takes a rib, he makes a woman from that rib and brings her to the man. And the man, it appears, is delighted, as all men since have been, I think, and at least most. So she, he appears to be delighted, and they are united they feel no shame. They are in harmony. Let's talk about a couple of things that come from this. The first is the word helper. I don't know about you, but when we talk about helping, that tends to sound like it's a secondary position. You've got maybe the main person doing something, and you've got somebody else helping them. And that puts them in a secondary, maybe lower, more subservient position. And that is an interpretation that has been common in Christian history over many centuries. And it is a position that some people still take, and they would say that other passages in the New Testament fit that kind of interpretation. That New Testament perspective is a topic for another day. But what I would say for the moment is, in the context of Genesis, that doesn't appear. That uh, implication is not there. Because the word helper is not used in a subservient way here. Because the word that's translated is, uh, is ezia. And that word is a word that's also used of God which we'll come to in just a second. I want to quote this, though, from this book first. Ezer is a generic term that refers 
to someone who contributes to completing a task or accomplishing a goal, the objective here is for the Azair to partner in tending the Eden garden. Genesis does not comment one way or another on whether the woman is a minor partner contributing less than Adam, a major partner, partner contributing more than Adam, or an equal partner. Genesis doesn't say. It just says the woman was created as the helper that Adam needed. And we should bear in mind that God is often called a helper, that same Hebrew word, ezir. He, God, is your shield and ezir, is your helper and your glorious sword. You are destroyed, Israel, because you are against me, against your helper. That's God speaking to Israel, your ezir. As for me, I'm poor and needy. You are my help and my deliverer. That's God, again. That's the same Hebrew word. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help, my ezir, is where? It's from the Lord. So if God is seen as a helper, I don't think he's subservient to you and me, right? So what the, the point I'm making here is not about what the New Testament may shed light on here, but at least from what we see in the passage and what we understand from the Old Testament is that there's no hint here of, again, any sense of subordination or hierarchy in this passage at uh, this time. So they are brought together. Uh, she is to be his helper. He is to be the one. Or she is to be the one that's to help her, and for them now to be, in some sense, complete. They do need each other. It seems that God is very clear that they cannot carry out the mandate that God has given them to be fruitful, to increase in number, to rule, to subdue, and to steward the creation. They cannot do that unless they do it together. Adam on his Adam on his own is not adequate to that role, and by implication, neither would Eve be. They need each other. And the primary point here is, by the way, although it talks about marriage at the end of the chapter, the primary point is not about marriage because it's about men and women. Uh, it explains that often what happens is, of course, most men and women end up getting married. And that is generally, obviously, the case. But it's not about marriage per se. It's about men and women stewarding, stewarding creation together. And I think the other point from this for me is that men and women are designed to be in community, whether married or single. We're designed for community. God knows that one person on their own is not, is not in a good place. To be isolated and alone is not good. We need each other. We need people with different gifts to our own. That's part of, I think, what is going on here. And of course, they're commanded to be fruitful. And in being fruitful, they are going to build community as a family and then families as time goes by. Their partnership for Adam and Eve will enable them to serve the creation which has been loaned to them, you could say, by God. And God has a vision here. For men and women working together harmoniously to bless each other, their children, the creation, the world. The plan was to be together enjoying intimacy with God. As Matthew Henry said, this is a paraphrase from uh, um, something he wrote in the 19th century. Eve wasn't created from Adam's head to dominate him, nor from his feet to be trampled on, but from his side to stand beside him as an equal, from under his arm to be protected, and from close to his heart to be loved. It's poetry, it's prose poetry, right? And it's not a doctrinal truth, but it expresses something that I think is rather beautiful and I would agree with. So this is chapter two. What do we learn about God from chapter two? We learn that God is generous. He creates so that Adam and Eve can be together. He desires us and enables human companionship for us to, to have that. He gives Adam and Eve a beautiful place to live. He gives them purpose and work to do, and they have companionship with God. So, moving on to, it was very good. It was not good, although it's better now because they're together. 
But it was also very bad. Genesis 3. Very bad. The consequences of rebellion and sin. We won't go through the whole story. We don't have time, of course. But the serpent comes on the scene and questions Eve. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So there's a distortion of the message. That's not actually what God said. The woman said, well, you can eat fruit from all the trees, but he did say you mustn't eat fruit from the tree in the middle. You don't touch it. You will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent says. God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like him, God, knowing good and evil. She saw the fruit was good, pleasing. She took some. She ate it, gave it to her husband. He ate it. They were, our eyes are open. They realize they're naked. They sow some fig leaves together. Then they hear God walking in the garden. They hide. God says, where are you? He says, I heard you. I was afraid. I was naked. I, I, I hid. Who told you you were naked, says God? Have you eaten from the tree? The woman, the woman, the man said. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit. I, and I ate it. I, I, I think I ate it. I guess I did. And God says to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman says, the serpent, the serpent, to see me. And I ate. The Lord said to the serpent, because you've done this, you're cursed, you'll crawl on your belly, eat dust. I'll put enmity, discord, between you and the woman, your offspring and hers. You'll crush, he will crush your head. You will strike his heel. To the woman, I'll make your pains in childbearing very severe. Painful birth, you'll give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. To Adam, because you listened, you must not eat. Uh, accursed is the ground, painful toil, thorns and thistles. You will eat the plants of the field. Sweat of your brow, you'll eat the food. You'll return to the ground from when you were taken. Whence you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, meaning life or living, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them, and the, the man has become like us, knowing good and evil. Mustn't be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and live forever. So he banishes him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground, drives the man out, and puts there cherubim and a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life to make sure that humankind cannot get back in there. So, consequences of rebellion and of disharmony between humankind and God, and in some ways between Adam and Eve themselves. Um, there is a sense in which blame shifting is part of normal human life, isn't it? Oh, sure. Blame the guy with no arms. This is so not cool. Uh, you know, the, the woman blames the serpent, the man blames the woman, and in a sense, who else does Adam blame? He blames God. The woman you gave me. There's a lot of blame shifting going on all over here. Uh, he blames, blames Eve. By the way, it could be argued that Adam is more culpable than Eve. Yeah. Why? Because God gave the direct command to Adam back in chapter 2. He didn't give the command directly to Eve. He gave it to Adam. And through Adam, obviously, Eve knew about it. So you could say that Adam's more to blame than Eve in this situation, though Eve tends to get uh, the bad rap because she had a chat with a serpent, which is generally not a good idea. Talking to talking serpents. I, I, don't, rec <laughs> I don't recommend it. I don't know quite what was going on there. But hasn't blame shifting become part of our culture? Yeah. I won't ask if it's become part of your life because I know it has, uh, because it's part of all of our lives on some level, right? This is what happens. There's broken trust. There's broken trust between them and God. There's broken trust between Adam and Eve themselves. There's broken trust in the creation and with God. Previously, Adam and Eve were working together for creation's benefit. Now, the dominant situation or the dominant uh, experience 
instead of working together in harmony, is one of fear. God is walking in the garden in this beautiful place, and they're afraid of him. How tragic that fear has replaced trust and the enjoyment of an intimate relationship with God. It says of the consequences for the woman, and I make a couple of short points here about this. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. This can be interpreted many different ways and I haven't got time to deal with all of them now. But I would just say this, that we shouldn't think that desire for your husband necessarily means lust or a physical sexual attraction. Maybe, uh, or maybe it'll be, some people would say that because of the sin in Eden, the woman's desire is to be ruled by her husband. That that's part of the consequences of the fall. But I would simply point out that the word desire, desire for your husband, doesn't always mean desire as in that attractiveness or that desire to take something. It can mean a desire to dominate. So you could equally translate this as your desire will be to dominate your husband. Now he's going to rule over you. That's going to be actually what happens because he's got more strength. We need to bear in mind also that that's, he will rule over you is a description, not a prescription. It's not a command of God that the man rule over the woman. It's a description of the consequences of sin. And so what you could argue here is that part of the consequences of sin is this disordering in human male-female relationships where men tend to have the greater power over women. And I don't mean the helpful kind of power when you need a bit of extra muscle to get something done. I mean the unspiritual and unkind use of power that we have seen, let's be honest, through much of human history. So we need to be careful about how we interpret this. There's a difference between a Bible passage that describes something as opposed to a Bible passage that says this is what God wants. And there's no hint in this passage that God wants the woman to have the husband rule over. I would suggest. There's something for us to think about because I think we have to think about this stuff a little bit because some of this is new for us, I'm sure. The generosity of God is still evident. What do we learn about God? We learn that he's a God of grace in this passage. Bear in mind, He's made everything, it's very good, and he's made it so that Adam and Eve can enjoy it. They need to look after it, but they're to be blessed in it. And they've gone and messed it up. What would your response be? I think I know what mine would be. I'm almighty God. I can do all this again and start again with a click of my fingers. Like it's not tough for God to start again, right? He could have wiped out the whole, but he certainly could have wiped out Adam and Eve and said, I don't know, I'll start again. A bit more dirt, because you know Adam's made from the dirt, right? He is dirt man, is who he is. So I, I, I've, there's plenty more dirt. I'll get rid of these two, and I'll start again. Got some more dirt. Let's try Adam um, 2.0. And, and I'll have uh, Eve 2.0, and we'll, get, we'll start again. I mean, I'd be tempted to do that. But God doesn't do that. He cares about them personally. There's grace here. There's grace to them, there's kindness. He makes clothes for them. I would suggest they're rather better than the clothes they made for themselves. Would you rather have fig leaves or would you rather have the, the hide of an animal as clothing? Uh, whatever you think about using the hides of animals ethically, uh, uh, that's a whole other question. But I think I'd rather have the hide of an animal than I would fig leaves, in, in winter especially. So God gives them an upgrade in clothing. They've gone from Primark to <laughs> M&S. Okay, we'll take that. Okay. They, you know, God doesn't punish them. In, but he, the consequences are there, but it, it's, 
It's consequences. It's not that he doesn't want them to have a blessed life. It's they messed it up. There are consequences. But he's still so kind. He's so patient with humankind. He could have destroyed them. He gives them better clothing. And here's the other thing. It is to humanity's blessing that he prevents them from having eternal life. And you might think, that, that's, no, that's not right. Surely it would have been better for them to, to have eternal life. But bear in mind now, disharmony. And what's going to happen in chapter 4 and 5? Cain and Abel, the first murder. I mean, violence is on its way. So what would have happened if they'd achieved eternal life in this fallen state? I mean, think about all the evil that's been perpetrated on this earth since those days. And we can't begin to imagine the totality of it. But imagine that all the people that had ever lived were still alive and still doing evil. <clears throat> How much more evil would there be? What if, to take the classic, if Hitler was still around? What if Stalin was still around? What if uh, Harold Shipman, for those of us who remember that story, was still around and, and, and practicing as a doctor? What if, I mean, you fill in the blank for your own horror story and situation, right? What if, no, actually, I, I can't. No, I better not say that. It's too political. What if, what, what if the evil kept mounting and mounting and mounting? So God protects humanity from that eventuality by preventing us from having eternal life whilst in this state. Giving us time to get into the different state that Jesus will bring one day. You see, the bottom line of a lot of this is there is hope. There's a lot of mess here, but there is hope. What do we learn about God? I suggest these. You may wish to add some thoughts of your own because it is about Adam and Eve, but it's also really about God. He's creative. He's generous. He's kind. He's protective. He's patient. He's a provider. He's sensitive. I say sensitive because when he goes into the garden uh, to confront them, uh, he doesn't give them a blasting. You know, He's like, where are you? There's a sensitivity, there's a kindness. He knows they're afraid. He's powerful, he's visionary. We'll come to that in a moment. And he is just. Sin must have its consequences. You might like to read through these passages again for yourself and ask yourself what else, what else you learn about the nature of God. But I want to go back to that visionary point there because amongst the consequences for the woman here, he says in verse 16, not verse 16, verse 15, to the serpent, in the, uh, he's saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. What do you think that's referring to? I also refer to Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, Quite why it's, it's a key that I've never understood. I can understand that Jesus crushed the, the devil's head and sounds like he crushed the devil's authority and power. But what he meant about heel, I've never, I've never understood that. So anybody has a revelation, please share. Okay, if you've got an idea about the heel, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I don't know why heel. Someone can do some research. It may just be that it's a more minor part of the body compared to the head, maybe. Because certainly Jesus is going to die on a cross uh, to bear our sins. And that's going to be... Um, massively costly for him, of course. But then, but then Satan's head is going to be crushed. Because what does the cross do? The cross defeats death. And it removes 
the consequences of sin. It deals with the problem that came in in Genesis chapter 3. You could say the curse has been reversed. In Romans 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What's Paul talking about? Well, at least part of what he's talking about there, I think, is that you, you Christians, can trust, even though you're in a tough situation. Christians in Rome, when he was writing this, a lot of persecution, a lot of problems. But he's saying there is hope. There's hope because as you look back at the cross, you can see that Jesus has defeated Satan already. But you're not enjoying it all just yet because you're still on this earth. But you will soon be able to fully enjoy all the fruits of that victory and a restoration of the kind of relationship with God that Adam and Eve had in Eden before chapter 3. Like that's where we're going, people. We're going back to, back to Eden. We're going back to what it was like for Adam and Eve in that garden with God. That's where we're going. You don't see it all right now because we're still here. But beyond this life, we're going to be going back to something at least approximating Eden in Genesis 2. We see that in Revelation if you want to study that another time. Isn't that a beautiful hope? It's not over. It was kind of a look over for Adam and Eve and for, for creation. But God had a plan that was that's back there in Genesis chapter 3. You will crush. Sorry, that Satan's, the evil one's head will be crushed. There is still hope. And so before we, uh, if he comes to lead us in a prayer, before we take uh, bread and wine, a couple of other thoughts and then I'll wrap up. We'll con conclude here. One of the things that you and I have got to wrestle with, personally and as a congregation, is what we think Genesis 1, 2, and 3 teach us about God's intent for the relationships between men and women. What do you think God intends? Why is it there? What does it tell us about God's vision for men and women? What is it? What is that vision of his? And then what are we here aiming for? What kind of relationship are we aiming for? Are we going to say that we're going to aim at continuing with the consequences of Genesis 3, of Adam and Eve's rebellion? Are we going to see the relationships between men and women in that light and accept it as an inevitability? Or I would suggest that we look instead at what happened before Genesis 2, at the relation uh, Genesis 3, at the relationship between Adam and Eve there, and aim at that. So we have to decide. What do we think is right? What do we think is normative? What do we think is God's plan for men and women? Is it Genesis 3 or is it Genesis 2? I think it's Genesis 2. Now, what that means, we still have to work out. And that's not today's lesson. Today's lesson is to ask us to wrestle with this. To ask yourself what you think it means. But God's vision for men and women now, just then, but now. One thing we do know is that because... Jesus has won the victory over sin and death. We have the first fruits, we have the beginnings of an intimate relationship with God that's only possible because of what Jesus has done. And it's still not yet what it was in Eden, but we're going there. We're walking there with Jesus in that direction. And we're going to take bread and wine to remind us of the cost of giving us this relationship with God that begins now and will come into all of its fruits in the future. We want to thank Jesus, don't we? We want to thank him for coming to earth to crush Satan's head. For without that, we'd have no hope of harmony between men and women or between any people.
It's only his sacrifice that gives us this harmony and heals the deep divisions. Ify, would you like to come and uh, pray for us at this time, please? Thank you very much.